Hello, my fellow fallible humans. Welcome to the Red Roof Recovery Show. This is a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. And in my experience, it's not just for addictions, it's for life. I'm honored to have my partner, my uh, husband, my best friend. He's joining me to bring a family perspective to the addiction recovery horizon because He's lived with me in marriage for uh, over 31 years now, and I am so grateful that he has persevered through my addictions to drugs and alcohol. So I like to call him Sir Lancelot. Thank you for being here, sweetheart. As always, I'm eternally grateful. You're welcome, Mona. So we're going to talk about acceptance. Uh, it seems to be a common theme in recovery circles because uh, it took me a very long time to reach a place of unconditional acceptance. So my recovery journey started when we were living in Spain. Uh, my addictions to drugs and alcohol took a very fast spiral downward when I got to a place where <laughs> my two favorite things, brandy and wine, were cheaper than water in Spain. So what that did is uh, it actually helped me spiral very quickly downward and pushed me into seeking recovery sooner than later. But of course, uh, you, my darling, were watching my addictions progress over the years. And you have shared with our listeners and viewers over the years what that was like for you. And uh, how, did, how did the whole concept of acceptance come into your life when you were dealing with me and watching me slowly kill myself every day? Well, I think the main thing is uh, when we, prior to moving to Spain, um, you would try to manage your addictions. So you would have periods of um, using a little bit less, measuring out and you were still drinking and I presume you were drinking a little bit more than I knew, but you seem to be trying to manage, shall we say. However, when we got to Spain, and as you said, we were embroiled in bureaucracy and um, living with a whole bunch of expats who had retired and that they started off with coffee with a couple of shots in it and this was the company you were keeping as you always say we can be the company that we keep um, the downward spiral was quick and what I realized uh, quite soon after we got there uh, is that I used to be able to say to you I think you're you might want to throttle back a little bit on on the drinking, it seems to be getting out of hand a bit. And you would say, yeah, I think you're right, and start to try and moderate somewhat. Whereas when we're in Spain and you were in that, basically I call it a free fall, um, you just chewed me out. You just went, yeah, mind your own business, I'm dealing with this, it's not anything to do with you. And I didn't realise it, it was nothing to do with me. I couldn't help you. I, I wasn't the one drinking. I wasn't the one spurring out of control. And it doesn't, didn't matter what I 
said or did, it just didn't matter. So I had to accept that the one I loved was going to do what she was going to do. And I had to do what I was going to do. Was that stand by you and try and see you for it? Or was that leave? And that, and at that time, it hadn't got to the point where the, the cost benefit analysis was getting closer to leaving than it was to staying. Mm. But the acceptance of realization that you cannot change what someone else is doing was a big one. And I think uh, timing for you, of course, as well, because you were taking on a new position as a project manager. So you were kind of becoming a workaholic as well. And I think you were perhaps um, distracting yourself with what was going on with me at home with work. You just spent more time at work. Well, I, the funny thing is that we, we went to stop me working as much. And if you remember, for the first nine months or so after you got there, maybe six months or so, I did work less. But then the crash of 2008 hit and everything went sideways. So just trying to keep, keep the business afloat, trying to get orders, trying to ship orders just became more magnified and the longer it dragged on, the more embroiled I got in it. And so, yeah, I was distracted as well. So here we are, um, that was the crash of 08, and now we're, <laughs> we're embroiled in yet another crash of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're recording this in the year of 2022, where we are now over two years in um, the COVID-19 pandemic, where we're seeing uh, absolutely, I think um, in many ways, this is our World War III. Uh, small business has been decimated and addiction and suicide rates have tripled. So the yes. world is uh, seeing a different kind of crisis um, on a whole other uh, level of magnitude, I think. Uh, certainly in, in, in our um, line of work, we are, we are introduced to the tragedy of this pandemic every day. Yeah. Um people's coping mechanisms um, are being stretched. You know, it's, it's okay dealing with addiction when that is the fundamental thing you're trying to cope with. So either manage your addiction or just get for a day. But then when you've got the added stresses of isolation, I know with addictions, you tend to isolate to somewhat, but there's a congregation of like-minded people as well. Add to that the inflationary type thing, so money is even scarce and it used to be. When you add all these factors in, then coping mechanisms tend to stretch and regrettably sometimes snap. Yeah, and I think for me, the more I learn about addiction, uh, because 
you know, addiction is, is not a character defect. It's not a moral failing as was the indoctrination I received when my recovery journey started in 2009. The only model of recovery uh, was the 12 step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm certainly not bashing 12 step programs. Uh, AA saved my life without question. And something called SMART, self-management and recovery training, gave me my life back because it deals with cognitive therapies, thinking therapies, and that made more sense to me. It's evidence-based, science-based. It evolves with science because science is always changing. And what I'm learning is that uh, even though addiction is still the most stigmatized condition on the planet, it's a biological vulnerability and um, you know, it's a chronic illness. It's a disorder of the ability to regulate dopamine. I believe that, that's still a theory. Um, like I said, there are there's still so little known about addiction and addiction has been an epidemic for as long as I've been on the planet for six decades. So it's just puzzling to me uh, why we have these models of recovery that are simply not working for the majority of people. But our governments continue to throw uh, millions and sometimes billions of dollars toward these models of recovery that are just not working. You know, I kind of use the the comparison of my nicotine addiction. I was addicted to a pack and a half uh, cigarette habit for most of my adult life. It was a very difficult addiction for me to overcome. I used a, a lot of different um, approaches with prescription, prescriptions and the nicotine patch and you know, uh, trying to moderate it and you name it, I tried it. I spent a lot of money trying to overcome my nicotine addiction. And I thought, well, you know, they give you a nicotine patch, you know, that that regulates nicotine throughout the day. And so you're absorbing uh, the, these hits of nicotine to help you withdraw from the addiction. And I'm thinking, I wonder why they haven't come up with a dopamine patch, because the more I learn about addiction, the more I believe that it is directly related to um, a deficiency of the ability to maintain healthy dopamine levels. And I'm convinced that that could be the key to helping people recover and to get out of that mode of thinking that uh, you know we're a moral failure, we're defective in character, and there's something wrong with us because it's a biological vulnerability, which is what motivated me to start speaking publicly about my addictions and subsequent recovery, because there is such still such a stigma around it that is just keeping people frozen in not asking for help, not reaching out for help. Well, I think that also there's a, there's a bigger problem that one of the things that the government does, it has to do something when you say the modes of recovery do not work. So if they went, well, we don't know what to do, so we're not going to do anything, then there would be a public outcry. Mm -hmm. So certain bodies say, we have an answer. It, it's not particularly successful, but we're doing something, and the government will go along with that because they're being seen to do something. When it comes to the stigma, I find it, quite strange because what it showed at the beginning of the pandemic was that we were told that all non-essential businesses would be closing down. 
However, your liquor store and your beer store are going to stay open. And the rationale was that if we close that, that the ERs will be inundated with people, which tells you the government knows that the, the addiction problem is far larger than the, what the public think it is. And there's a heck of a lot of people out there that either don't think they have a problem, don't want to realize that they've got a problem, and they do have a problem. Now, I don't know whether you think there is, uh, you've always said that addiction is um, a progressive thing. For me, it was. But is there, is there degrees of addiction, as in, can someone have to have a drink, two or three drinks, four or five drinks every day, which is an addiction, but will not go right away down the rabbit hole as in to get to drink a bottle a day? Well, it's I think that, that certainly that's how it started for me. Um, you know, I was having an average of three to five drinks a day. And when I saw my doctor, I was prescribed an antibiotic for something. And, you know, you get those little inserts in the bag with your prescription. And when I read it, it said, if you have uh, three or more drinks a day, do not take this medication. And when I went back to the doctor and said, you'll have to uh, prescribe something else. I can't take this. Why can't you take this? She said, I said, because I have, uh, you know, between three and five drinks a day. And she said, so you're an alcoholic. And it was like getting slapped in the face. It was like, no, I'm not an alcoholic because of course I was with company who were also drinking three to five drinks a day. That was normal, that was average. So I certainly didn't define myself as having a substance use disorder or an alcohol use disorder because all my friends were consuming the same amount. And mm -hmm. I was also maintaining a, a successful career. Uh, you know, we. Uh, had a house, we were keeping up our mortgage payments, we each had a car, we were keeping up our car payments. Uh, we were also holding more debt than savings, which most uh, Canadians and North Americans are, unfortunately. But that was normal. That's considered a normal state of being. So I felt that there was nothing abnormal about my drinking and oh. drugging. I didn't mention the drugging part to my doctor, but yeah. Uh, so that was a slap in the face. And, you know, so then, you know, in recovery circles, we say uh, denial is more than a big river in Egypt. So what did I do? <laughs> I walked out of her office and I found another doctor because I wasn't ready to face the fact that my addictions were progressing. They were becoming unmanageable, but I was staying in the company of people who were reinforcing my, my belief that this was normal. So here we are sitting here in North America, talking about your doctor and the inserts, saying that three or more drinks a day are... constitutes alcoholism. Yep. So let's take ourselves back to when we lived in Spain. Almost everyone in Spain has more than three drinks a day. Correct. They have their menu del dia, where there's a bottle of wine on the table, okay, it's between four people. They go home, there's wine with dinner and thing, and then they go for a, a walk with the family, they sit at a bar, they have a couple of drinks and have a chat, and they go home and go to bed. They have more than four, four or five drinks a day, every day. 
but in Europe, they're not classed as alcoholics. That's just normal life. Mm -hmm. so is all of Europe, are they all alcoholics? Or <laughs> is different different measurement wherever we work, live? Well, the definition of an addiction is when we continue to do something in spite of the negative consequences. So if there aren't enough negative consequences to you know, give you that alert that there is something wrong and that the, these behaviors are becoming unmanageable and you need to seek help to you know, get things back under control, uh, because you know a lot of people I see in recovery are still wanting to moderate because we live in a society that uh, normalizes the consumption of alcohol and now drugs. You know, we've got um, marijuana stores on every corner of towns and cities um, because, you know, the, our government has figured out a way to legalize it and tax it. So it's now legal. So I think we're only scratching the surface of uh, the addictions, the addiction rates that have already tripled. I think it's just, uh, it's just beginning. Well, also, uh... I, I always remember back in when I first got here, a few years into, uh, there was the government wanted to put up the price of a case of beer by two bucks and add some, add some tax. And gas prices have been going up and this has been going up. But there was almost a revolt when people said, you can't do that to our beer. Now, is it that... Yeah, I mean, European and North American, European-based, most of the world have had a an alcohol culture, should we say. You know, things have been fermented for pretty well as long as human beings have been on, you know, growing stuff. We've been fermenting stuff from horses' milk to barley and what have you. But I think it's a way of placating the masses as well, keep them under control. Uh, I read something once, there was a, there was a, in Morocco, there was a, a sultan called Muli Ismail. And what a lot of people didn't realize that there were a heck of a lot of Euro, European slaves in North America. They used to come and take whole villages from up in Scandinavia, the UK, France, and all the way around the Mediterranean basin. And for the longest while, all these European slaves would be unruly, shall we say. And one of uh, Muli Ishmael's advisors said, after a day's work, give them a measure of wine. And he said, but this is a Muslim state. You know, we don't drink. He said, but they're not Muslim. And give them a measure of wine. And it placated the masses. Mm -hmm. So I think the government has part of that as well. Mm. Yeah, we, we know that alcohol doesn't do you any good. It's literally a poison. Do you drink well, nobody? Same with cigarettes. We know that uh, cigarettes, ask, ask any doctor, and they say, you know, the, the combined effects of alcohol and tobacco consumption over time uh, has far more uh, harm on people than all chronic illnesses. So, you know, we've got two of the most harmful substances that are highly taxed and uh, readily available. And we have to ask, why is that? 
because you know we're also dealing with uh, societal constructs around educational systems that are training us as children to be obedient, complacent taxpayers who are told what to think, not how to think. So I think parents are waking up to those realities. Um, I think if anything, this pandemic has brought everything um, to a very uh, clear vision for people of what's important. It certainly helped you reach a place where you wanted to retire sooner than later because time is not a renewable resource. Yes, but you know, there are a lot of people out there, friends of mine that I've worked with and that, that um, didn't have that luxury. I mean, if I was 40 years old and we still had the big mortgage and, you know, especially if we had a couple of kids putting them through university, which we do not, but if we did, then there's no way I could have, you know, given up unless we changed our life totally, sold the house, sold the cars, took the kids out of university. So, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that I was at a point in life where I could just say, you know what, it's time. There's a lot of people that don't have that. And, you know, that adds to their, their everyday stress, Absolutely. which people, when people get stressed out, how many times do we hear, like, you know, especially on a Friday evening, Thank God it's Friday. I'm, I can pour myself a drink and relax. Yeah, because decent. we tend to associate alcohol and cigarettes and marijuana and that with relaxation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which I'm not sure about marijuana because I'm not that up with that. But cigarettes and alcohol are actually a stimulant. So you're not relaxing. You're actually increasing your heart rate. Right? And then after the alcohol stimulates you, it sends you into a depression. So, yeah. A double-edged sword there, yes. Double-edged sword. So on a Friday, everyone's saying that they're relaxing, but actually they're not. But we've been taught this. Yes. So to the acceptance uh, piece, the unconditional acceptance, <laughs> <laughs> We're down another rabbit hole for sure, uh, as we so often do. But on the acceptance pieces, so for me, acceptance took me years and many, many relapses. So I spent eight years in 12-step programs of AA and NA, and I was relapsing every year or two. And what I was observing in those meetings as well, um, I love the peer support of 12-step programs. I still go to 12-step meetings. I think it's a, the best personal development program on the planet. But I was going to a lot of funerals and I thought it's just going to be a matter of time before I don't come back from one of my relapses. And that's what uh, motivated me to look for an alternative, something I could bring to my community that might help people resonate more with uh, the journey of recovery, because it's a journey. And more often than not, it's not a linear journey. It hasn't been for me. But I am happy to say I just celebrated uh, four years of continued abstinence from drug and alcohol addictions. And that is when I found SMART, self-management and recovery training. It's growing exponentially now, I'm happy to say. It's, um, it's international. Actually, I wanted to have a quick look at the UK uh, SMART recovery because there's a gentleman there who does a very good rendition of something we call the hula hoop tool. 
So let's watch this together. It's only um, four <coughs> minutes okay. and uh, then we're going to sign off. So let's watch this now. Okay. Hello. Um, today I wanted to have a look at the hula hoop tool, um, which is a great tool for helping us when we think things are getting on top of us, other people, other events are affecting us um, and getting on top of us. Um, so it starts with the idea that as a person, here I am, I have, the same as all, all human beings, I have thoughts, I have feelings and I have behaviours. I have things that I believe and think, things that I feel, emotions, and things that I do. Um, and you can imagine that those thoughts, feelings, and emotions are in a hula hoop. Like you're wearing a, one of those old big loops, loop things that you swing around, a hula hoop. And my thoughts, feelings, and emotions are inside that hula hoop. And that means they're my responsibility. I'm responsible for everything that happens inside my hula hoop. Everything outside my hula hoop, that isn't my responsibility. The only thing I'm responsible for are the things inside my hula hoop. Now, what that means is that someone else, maybe Fred here, Fred, he's also got thoughts, feelings, and behaviours. Um, and they're his responsibility. Now, what I want to try and do is not let Fred's thoughts, feelings, and behaviours affect mine. An example might be that, say, maybe Fred loves Wraith Rovers. He thinks Wraith Rovers are the best football team that's ever, ever existed. Nothing could be better. And he knows that I like Brighton and Hove Albion. I support Brighton and Hove, and I think they're amazing. Um, and Fred might say to me, well, Brighton are rubbish. Look at them, they're useless. Um, they can't play football for, for Toffee. Um, and so that's Fred's thoughts coming over towards me. Now, I could get really upset about that. Um, and it could really annoy me. Um, and if I get really upset and really annoyed by it, I might go and use my substance to try and stop myself feeling so upset or annoyed. Um, but what I can do is I can use my hula hoop as a barrier. So I'm not gonna let Fred's thoughts and feelings affect my thoughts, feelings and behaviors. Um, Fred's quite entitled. He's quite allowed to think that Brighton and Hove are rubbish. Um, he's quite allowed to say that. That's his responsibility. Off you go, Fred. Knock yourself out. Say what you like. But I'm not going to let your thoughts affect my feelings. Fred might even go and write online and write about how rubbish Brighton and Hove are. Um, and he's allowed to do that. He's allowed his opinion um, and he can go and do that. And I might see it and read it on Facebook or, or social media uh, 
and I could get really angry with it. So I could get really angry. His behavior could make me really angry. But if I, if I allowed that to happen, I might go and do something, I might go and use my substance to make myself feel better. So again, I'm gonna use my hula hoop and imagine it as a barrier. This is my safety barrier. Everything inside here is, it belongs to me and is my safety barrier. I'm not gonna let Fred here upset me. Fred's allowed his opinions, he's allowed his thoughts, his own feelings, his own behaviours, um, and he can say those things. But I'm not going to let them, Fred's feelings come in and affect my feelings. Um, and by doing this, imagining this hula hoop around us, it's like a barrier with all our thoughts, feelings and behaviours inside. What I can do is I can protect myself. I can protect myself from feeling bad. And if I can feel less bad, there's less chance of me going out and using my substance. So yeah, there you have it. There you have it. I love that concept of the hula hoop. What is within our control? There is great power in knowing that the only thing we can control in life is ourselves. Thank you so much, my darling. I always love your perspective. Thank you for being here. And thank you for hanging out with us for an hour of your time. You're an integral part of my recovery journey. But let's talk to ourselves like we talk to our best friends. We talk to ourselves in our heads more than we talk to anyone. So let's make the effort to make it a nice place to be. May the force be with you. And remember, you are the force.